The Intrafish podcast is brought to you by DSM Animal Nutrition and Health, accelerating sustainable and profitable aquaculture. Hello and welcome to the Intrafish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, joined by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. John, you were down in the Global Seafood Market Conference in Palm Springs, California, or at least near Palm Springs, California, I guess. And um, the GSMC, as it is abbreviated to, um, has been held annually. Uh, it brings together the top executives in the American seafood industry, um, and and typically a, a great event. Uh, they give a rundown of, uh, in particular, the markets in the U.S., but also generally the supply around the world uh, for the key species, uh, with kind of a, a focus on salmon, uh, shellfish, shrimp, and whitefish, as well as kind of hitting on some of the uh, some of the trends. Um, among consumers. So I thought we'd start there uh, and just get your impressions, John, of, uh, of what, uh, what the event was like. It was also slightly unusual, uh, slightly different um, than others. And why don't you start by talking about that? Yeah. Um, the difference this year, obviously, is um, the loss of John Connolly, the leader of the National Fisheries Institute, which uh, sponsors a conference, uh, lost John in November uh, to cancer. And uh, the conference started off on Sunday evening with what I would say is one of the most incredible memorials I've ever been to. Um, it, it was it was just so well done. And, you know, there were a number of speakers who spoke so um from the heart and uh, just about John and and you know what what came out at the end of the night after you kind of distilled all this is you know John's sense of humor, his caring about the people in this industry as well as the industry um, those were just hallmarks and speaker after speaker touched on some very personal things John had done for them in their career or, you know, in their lives. And it, it was, it was really well done. The staff deserves, I can't even tell you how much credit for putting that together because, um, you know, they, they had, they experienced a loss probably more than, you know, maybe anybody uh, outside his family because, he saw them every day and he, and they've been dealing, you know, a lot of those staff, like we said, a podcast or two ago have been there for, you know, a decade or more. And so, um, yeah, so that's how it started out and you'd think it would be somber, but it was really not. It was so many funny stories about John and his crazy sense of humor. So anyways, it was, it was well done. And I think, uh, I think it was the right way to, to do things. Well, you know, what's interesting is um, I we've talked about this before, but across the industry, uh, no matter where you are around the world, there's a there is a vacuum of leadership 
um, particularly in the next generation coming. Uh, and it's always been no more uh, kind of apparent than uh, some of these uh, events, you know, some of these gatherings, especially the, the conferences. And, you know, I don't, I, it's something actually that, uh, that John Connolly really talked about a lot is the need for that. And I don't know, I mean, did you, given that, do you think we've made any progress in kind of attracting a, a new generation into the, the seafood sector? Or was your impression that um, you're seeing a lot of the, uh, the same faces and, and a kind of a shortage of that? No, I, I think we are attracting uh, new talent. And, and you mentioned John's belief in that. Well, John, along with Wally Stevens and some others, created through NFI the Future Leaders Program, which has been going on for, I, I can't tell you, at least a decade, maybe longer, probably longer. Um, and uh, they convene uh, during this conference as well. So, um that program has been highly successful in in placing people, not placing, but in educating the future leaders of tomorrow at companies across the seafood industry, whether they be shrimp, salmon, whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you go you go to this conference in particular, or the Boston Seafood Show, and certainly you see the the old guard, and but. Old is kind of an important word here. They, they are older, and you know, you, the obviously the likely path is that they'll retire and and all that. But there is, I think, there is a a pretty big flood of new talent into this industry, and they're paying their dues right now, right? And they'll get their chance. So, um, yeah, and you know, speaking of new talent, John. John's uh, successor, Lisa um, uh, Picard, will. Uh, she was on hand, of course. That was her uh, kind of coming out party, and I thought she struck a nice uh, balance between being available but not trying to, uh, you know, take over the the event. And and that probably sounds weird, but. She was very accessible throughout the thing, and she, they had a little round table uh, on the second day uh, in which she spoke a little bit. But, um, you know, everybody is now waiting to see um, what happens with, with Lisa and where things will go. And uh, But I, I got the impression talking to folks that hadn't met her that she uh, made a good uh, impression on on uh, the crowd, so to speak. Hmm. Good. Yeah, it, it, it is going to be interesting to see, you know, when you step into a role like that, there's so much to learn. And again, you know, it's good to, to hear that you maybe were seeing some new faces at the event and that, you know, we, we are seeing, we've seen a lot of personnel changes uh, in the past uh year or so i mean it's amazing the movement that's happening in the the seafood industry of people getting uh hired uh people leaving just all kinds of shifts and so um you know uh that can't be anything but good um to bring um to bring some new faces and ideas into the fold of course um okay so john maybe you can just sort of 
to, to move us into uh, some of the discussion points uh, about the, the market. And I, I'm going to start with shrimp because um, it's been in a really interesting situation over the past couple of years. There's been some real shifts in particular of what uh, of who's supplying the U.S. market. Um, coming into 2023, uh, we have sort of a, a flat, slightly down uh, level of global shrimp production. Uh, we know the first half's going to be a little bit uh, down. Um, we know that from from lower stocking rates. The the um, the presenters were saying. So, uh, what was sort of the outlook you think for uh, for that species uh, from the panelists? Were they feeling uh, were they feeling positive in the the long term and what sort of hurdles did they see coming up for for this year yeah i think um there's a lot of nervousness in the shrimp sector both on the farming side and both on the sales and distribution side um you know Production is is always an issue, and as you mentioned, um, production has slipped uh, slipped in 2022, and expected to slip a little further in 2023. Um, and you know, in a natural world of economics, that would mean prices would be rising, and um, you know, people would, in some cases, be happy. At least it's um, suppliers would be getting more even if there wasn't as much available however in the current situation not only are is volume kind of retreating uh prices are not strong um so and demand has been weak uh largely because of inflation largely because um retailers haven't been doing promotions of shrimp in store which are really important to moving shrimp um they they account for a big part of the energy uh at the consumer level and so you know i think if you were to put it in a word it would be you know somewhat frightened about where things it's hard to get a handle on where things are headed so um you know i don't think you're going to see a lot of change at least in the first half of the year that that's the way it sounded and everybody's kind of waiting to see what the macroeconomics in the in the country yield because until we know where the consumer is going uh, as far as its food purchasing, um, it, it's hard to say. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would look for promotions as a indicator of improving um, situation, at least in the U.S., um, and those may be coming in in Q2 and beyond, perhaps. So this is kind of interesting. I mean, that you know, looking at the the, the short term figures on that, and I, I think shrimp seems particularly elastic when it comes to consumer spending in the United States, um, unlike salmon, which we'll get to in a second. But um, but what is really interesting were some statistics that uh, Nielsen presented there to give you a sense of quarter to quarter. Uh, 
nervousness, yes. But the, the stats here on the growth in frozen food in general are kind of stunning. You know, it's important to take a look back at that four-year track where I'm seeing uh, Nielsen showed that $2.6 billion uh, in shrimp were sold in 2018, frozen shrimp, uh, at retail. And last year, $3.8 billion were sold at retail. It's a $1.2 billion additional sales in frozen, frozen shrimp on the U.S. retail market. That's, that's stunning. And while these numbers, the decline from 2021, uh, down about $144 million in overall sales from 2021 to 2022, um, that's still really remarkable i think when you look at where things were pre-pandemic you can really i know there's been a lot of discussion about uh oh, the pandemic bump has kind of you know gone down or whatever certainly not in these statistics that they presented you know if you look at 2019 um again you've you've added an additional three billion dollars in uh retail sales in frozen uh frozen seafood shrimp and or you know all frozen seafood including shrimp yeah but part of the challenge there is a lot of that is inflation because when you look at uh and i don't have it in front of me i'm sorry but when you look at volume you're not seeing that type of um that type of growth and even if you look at uh shrimp imports right now into the u.s you know they were down in 2021 they're probably going to be lower in 2022 so um while the value certainly you're seeing some change there um i don't know that that's translating to an expanding market i don't think the two go hand in hand i i you know i i could be off on this but we also have to remember that um, suppliers' costs have been soaring. So even if they are getting, uh, even if they were getting more for their shrimp, a lot of it's being consumed in higher costs. Right. I mean, there's since 20, you know, speaking of inflation, so farm shrimp prices have gone up uh, 4% uh, since 2020. So, you know, there's been a push there. And then also, you know, we, you said there were some interesting uh, presentations on uh, on costs and logistics. And when it comes to ocean freight and um, when it comes to uh, all the fees involved with logistics, shrimp is one that is incredibly complex and really, really at the whims of the uh, of the shipping sector, which saw record high uh prices and all kinds of issues uh at the height of the pandemic and in 2021 and earlier in 2022 which have eased a bit but still are you know still are an issue so um, yeah and uh, cold storage is is such a challenge right now that was that was one of the main uh points during a portion of the conference was just the the challenge to literally find a spot in cold storage, uh, particularly in the U.S., but elsewhere too. And um, uh, Danny DiDonato, um, cold storage expert um, at Lineage, he 
he kind of got everybody's attention when he said there's really no new capacity, cold storage capacity coming online in the U.S. in any near term or even kind of midterm. There's just, you know, they're, I think they're uh, hard to build um, in the sense that they're expensive. They're all robotics now. Most of, you know, you don't have a lot of human labor in these anymore. So that makes them more costly. But his point was like, hey, this is what we got. And until we get some of this product moving, um, you know, their shelves are full, so to speak. So I found that really interesting, something I want to, I know we've reported on it somewhat, but I think it's something that uh, we need to dig into a little bit more, to be honest with you, because, it, and it doesn't just affect shrimp, obviously, any seafood that's, you know, frozen uh, has to be stored somewhere. And um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting they, you know, the, he mentioned that the strategy for years has been just in time inventory, especially for retailers, but food service too. So, you know, the product is flows through the supply chain just in time to get, you know, to where it goes. And it, so it doesn't spend a lot of time necessarily in cold storage. Um, but now because of the trouble, the trouble in availability of product from overseas or wherever, a lot of companies have moved to this just in case mentality. And what that means is they're just going to keep more inventory on hand just in case they can't get more to back this stuff up that they're selling. So the, the, uh, the upside or not the upside but the result of that is that they're leaving it in cold storage longer they're warehousing it longer because they don't want to run out particularly with their bigger customers well let's talk about uh, a species that does seem like it it just does not care what happens with the economics um and and seems to be uh <laughs> more than able to uh, to uh, convince consumers to purchase it uh, regardless of the price um, and that's farm salmon now uh, interesting stats were presented by uh, Kuntali, the, the analyst group uh, about the uh, the volume uh, we know that there's going to be uh, slow to uh, very limited growth for uh, a long time to come. In the short term, uh, there is expectation that there's going to be relatively short supply uh, in the first half. Um, there, uh, there was a recent report put out by Rabobank that... Um, gave a, a little bit of light on on to why that might be um chile which was expected to produce a lot more uh, salmon uh now is is actually not looking like they will be doing that this year um because of some disease issues that they've been uh, struggling with so um yeah it's a it is a uh an unusual time and even though consumers um, seem to be more than happy to pay for it. Uh, as we know in the background, there is uh, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of complexity. Um, Norway, there should be a little bit of increase, but 
some in the UK, uh, but for the most part, flat to declining, um, even in the areas that are kind of potential growth areas, you might say. So um, with around 1% growth projected, uh, you are not going, and demand continuing to rise, you're not going to see an ease in price pressure. Um, but there's other factors, of course, that they discussed. Um, tell me how they um, how they discussed the uh, the the tax, uh, the resource tax, and and how has that been affecting um, sort of the the market so far? And was there any projections on how it how it might affect things further as the year goes on? Yeah, they didn't spend uh, a lot of time on on that, um, other than to say, you know, what is been said uh, you know it, it's led to uncertainty and these contracts that uh, supply contracts are usually signed towards the end of the year for the following year or you know three months or six months into the following year those largely have been put on hold and and that makes it difficult for a retailer for example to know how much they're going to bring in at what price so they can put it on special um, in in their weekly advertisements or whatever it may be. So while, yeah, it's definitely a factor, but I, I mean, the resounding uh, soundbite uh, from the Salmon panel in particular was this, and we're talking about the USA because it's the U.S. market um, that they focus on, but this insatiable demand um that is showing no no signs of of receding at all and you know you you got done and my conclusion it's not new by any means but my conclusion was salmon holds up the seafood department at retail and salmon holds up menus at food service even more so on the food service side because a number of the um, speakers talked about the shrinking menus at food service, a result of COVID, a result of labor, lack of labor in the house and, and stuff like that. So the menus have shrunk. So a lot of seafood has been cast aside, but one that isn't is salmon. Salmon stays on. And, um, you know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You go to a restaurant, oh, I want some seafood. Oh, let's see, fish and chips. No, it's a little too heavy. Oh, they got salmon. Oh, okay, I'll get salmon. You know what I mean? So it's just, I mean, it's astounding, like, the the demand um, uh, growth at every level, right through the broadline distribution level and on and on. So you can see uh, in the in the statistics that uh, Cantali uh, uh, presented uh, in in the slides. I have them here in front of me. But you know, you see from 2012, uh, there was around a kilo whole fish equivalent per capita in the United States eaten. That's gone up to uh, two, and you just you know the 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 real stunning takeaway is as you said, John the the sharp rise in the U.S. market, but also in the EU and U.K., which continues to grow. But, you know, it's pretty clear uh, if these trends hold that the U.S. will overtake the EU and U.K. um, in the not-too-distant future. And and that's quite interesting when you think about 
the overall general dynamics of of uh, of the industry and how you serve it. But um, yeah, I mean, it it is kind of it's kind of amazing that even with those prices, you know, you really there's a little maybe a bit more um, elasticity in Europe. Um, and you see maybe a little bit of a reaction to those high prices in the in the demand when you look at the uh, the annual uh, numbers there, but not in the U.S. The U.S. stopped growing as quickly as it was, but it kept on going right through all those record prices last year. Well, and you know, Chile has long been the dominant supplier, obviously, uh, to the U.S. Uh, farm salmon supplier, and uh, one of the slides they presented showed. Um, uh, let's see, kind of who supplies the U.S. market. And Chile has been increasing steadily since 2019. Um, and Norway, for example, has been had been flat until last until 2021 and started to show like some growth, some significant growth. And they estimate when 22 numbers are all done, they'll be up again. Same with uh, suppliers from other parts of Europe. So it's, you know, the market is has been discovered, for lack of a better expression. So there, you know, as much as the demand grows, there's also this supply interest that is trying to meet it, not just from Chile, although Chile is trying to keep up as well, obviously. I mean, it's it's really stunning when you look at the statistics uh, from Erner Barry on the uh, the prices of Atlantic salmon versus, say, beef, chicken, pork, and I mean it it sits significantly significantly higher than chicken, uh, and you know, and beef and pork, and and yet and yet it just keeps you know, keeps on climbing in consumption. It's kind of fascinating to see, you know, it's, uh, it, it, again, it seems like it's, um, just not responding in the same way. And, you know, I think part of this is a glimpse at the future, right? Of what happens when aquaculture, uh, takes even further hold. And despite it's kind of slow movement here and there, um, you know, in, in acceptance um, among uh, Western consumers over the past couple of decades, um, I think increasingly we're seeing, we're going to see uh, big leaps in acceptance of, of aquaculture production. Um, and I think salmon is really showing the way for if you can produce a product and at a regular interval with the regular size and people can depend on it, um, they'll, it's, it's just going to grow. Um, well, there's one slide in here that really caught my attention. It's the five-year growth uh, measured on dollars and then measured on volume for salmon. So I'm a little less impressed with the dollar growth just because some of it may be inflation, but I'll, I'll, I'll go through this. So the five-year dollar growth on fresh salmon sales in the U.S., 49.4%. On frozen, 47.7. The volume growth, five-year volume growth, is what impresses me. Fresh salmon, 31%. Frozen salmon, 12, uh, roughly 12.5%. 12 I mean, that is 
your your fresh salmon market grew by 31 percent in five years that's that's incredible i mean you know and and, you know we're always kind of jealous because chicken is oh it's chicken and people just buy it because it's chicken well salmon has kind of become the chicken of of seafood in the sense that People seem very comfortable with it, very familiar with it, understand how to handle it, how to cook it, and are not at all afraid to buy it. And in fact, are probably buying it. Uh, there were some stats in there I could look, but are probably making it part of their weekly grocery shopping, uh, you know, experience. So just one other thing to hit on here, John, if you could. Um, what jumped out on uh, and whitefish projections and, and shellfish, uh, take those in, in either order that you want. Uh, sure. Uh, shellfish, um, you know, a lot of it was spent on crab. Um, and and uh, crab looks like not not the super best place to be. One of the things that caught my attention was, you know, we can't import any of the Russian crab directly into the U.S. because of the trade or the sanctions because of the war. Um, So there was this massive import uh, before the June deadline when, you know, hard stop couldn't import any more Russian crab. So now we're starting to see that that um, backlog or that import, you know, push is starting to go away. So the the supply is getting is dwindling. Now, granted, it's not like there's a super demand for king crab at thirty nine dollars a pound or whatever it may be. However, um, there that backlog is going to be gone by probably second half of the year and there's nothing coming in really of any size to fill that so you know the crab market is 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 going to be really i think broken and fragmented for for quite a while you know i think the dungeness crab that comes in on the west coast of the u.s you know, probably stay there for the most part. It, it can't fill the gap. So, um, unless you know something happens where Russia starts shipping it through a third country that somehow can make it into the U.S., I don't know. You know, those things have happened in the past. So, um, but yeah, no, the crab will not be a fun place to play. It doesn't look like. And then whitefish, um, you know, the same the same stressor is is there, and it's Russia. And uh, you know, again, we're not importing much Russian pollock, but any that could have been can't. And uh, but so much of it goes to China and is reprocessed, and that appears to still be coming in. Um, uh, you know, in a pretty good flow um but quotas are high for pollock in particular and the supply looks steady um some of the u.s people i talked to said 
you know, their customers, all, all that they have is being sold to their current customers. There's no real prospecting for new customers. So that kind of tells you the market is, is tight. Um, but it's, it's satisfying its customers. So it, you know, interesting to see too, just overall supply, um, especially for uh, Atlantic cod in particular is really, you know, it's slated to go down again by about 14% this year, which is, it's a lot of fish off the market. Um, and as you said, John, with Russia, uh it it's it's just it's up in the air how uh how these countries will handle uh fish that comes via china you know i get the sense that so far i don't think europe will do anything about it um because there's just too much uh too much of a strong um uh pushback especially in germany where a lot of the the uh the frozen fish products are produced but in the U.S., it is going to be interesting, too, to see the reaction to um, uh, the China tariffs that were put in place under Trump. And our colleague John Evans has a story on that um, today on, um, on Intrafish and actually a, a follow-up coming up uh, tomorrow or the next day. And it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if any further doors are attempted to be closed on... Uh, on Russia this year, or if everyone's sort of done what they are going to do. You have Norway, which could take further action on cod landings. And, and here in the U.S., the At Sea Processors Association, which is five groups that are, are harvesting um, on catcher, uh, catcher processor vessels, um, Trident, American, and on a few, uh, a few others there. Um, and they, uh, they, they want... Uh, tariffs put in on those imports for obvious reasons. They're competing with them. On the other side, a lot of the processors like Highliner, uh, Gorton's, which is owned by uh, Nippon Suisan, um, you know, uh, Captain D's, a fast food restaurant uh, chain in the United States, they all want them lifted. And I, I think that's going to be really interesting to see is if there are further arguments and investigations uh, into the source of products coming via China. And I, I think the industry, the, the, um, the broader seafood industry, I think understands that. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, I think it's been raised in a few uh, publications, um, mainstream publications here or there that, that Chinese, uh, uh, or sorry, Russian product is kind of making its way through the back door via China into the into the U.S. and Europe, so it'd be interesting to see how that that would be one more thing that changes, um, <laughs> radically changes dynamics on whitefish. Well, yeah, and and the other point uh, uh, that was talked about with the whitefish uh, panel is tilapia and pangasius. Um, you know, we've written quite a bit about are these going to be alternatives to Pollock? Uh, are these going to be just general whitefish alternatives given uh, some of the situation uh, right now? So it, it's kind of interesting because there was a, a big discussion about uh, menu pen penetration for these whitefish. And I'm just going to run through some numbers because I think they're kind of interesting. So the tilapia, uh, menu penetration uh, at restaurants in the U.S. 7.4 percent in 2022, which 
is down. So wait, like, John, what's that mean then? Seven that it's made it into seven point four percent of restaurant uh, menus then. Uh, yeah, they, just got they, it. Okay. In very simple terms, yeah, it's on seven point four percent of the menus that they. This is data essential. So, um, but that's down from twelve percent in twenty twelve, and it's been steadily kind of slipping. Um, Pangasius is enjoys a whole one percent menu pe- penetration, which is horrible. Haddock three percent, um, and then if you go look at cod. Cod is it was 12.4 percent in 2022, but it's usually hovering around 14 percent. So, you know, it's um, those those tilapia and pangasius. Uh, they they would have a lot of work to do to kind of bring them back up or bring them up enough. But you know, there's. That may be uh, the best direction for for a while. I don't know. That was interesting. Just the the figures on awareness. Uh, now I think that the Alaska Pollock industry uh, at their conference a few months back, John. I think they mentioned some of the gains they've been making on menus, you know, and, and awareness of the of the uh, of the species itself. But you know, for all the ways that that tilapia has really struggled uh in the united states part of it the china tariffs um that trump put in place did jack up the the costs quite a bit and you did see some some impact there on the the volumes and you've seen definitely seen a volume decline over the course of you know several years with uh tilapia um a lot of bad press there i think really did take hold i think it was you know, really was hammered on social media, um, which had an impact as well. And yet, 84% of consumers know what tilapia is. And that, that is, I mean, you know, people would kill for that kind of awareness, you know, of, of their products. So um, I don't think yeah, tilapia is no. dead yet. No, I don't think so either. And I think tilapia holds up pretty well in some of the breaded and those types of value added items. Um, so, um, you know, there's room to play in there, especially if uh, the market is short on Pollock, which is, you know, kind of the dominant species for that portion of the uh, retail channel and food service channel. Right. Well, and then, John, you said there was a lot of sort of general trends to discuss that are, are kind of interesting in our, our news meeting this morning. We talked about um, some of the interesting millennial trends and how there's kind of two groups of consumers that are emerging. And, I mean, a lot of these trends are um, things maybe we've heard in the past, but there were some you said that jumped out that were different uh, that uh, the industry probably needs to keep its uh, its eyes on. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the big one is, and this is not new information, but the boomer <laughs> crowd, <laughs> which has propped up seafood buying in the U.S. for decades and is, continues to be, you know, the largest uh, demographic for seafood purchases that demographic in a very few short years will give way to the millennial uh demographic and the the one behind them gen z i think i I get 
confused, but um, and those will be the dominant purchasers of uh, dominant consumers. Period of everything, but um, obviously of seafood too, just uh, because um, by default. But um, and this is a group that it, it, it's very interesting. They they talked about the the. Um, the millennials now breaking into two kind of groups, kind of the older millennials and the younger millennials. And they behave a little differently uh, across a lot of um, across a lot of categories. But when it comes to seafood, um, you know, the older millennials, um, it, it's it's unclear <laughs> It's unclear where they're going uh, with seafood, although they tend to seem to be uh, more favorable towards it. The the younger consumers, I don't the younger millennials, I don't think they know yet. But what one thing to take away from that is these, whether they're the younger or the uh, older millennials or the Gen Zers. Um, you can't market to these people the same way you did to the boomers. I mean, we we joke today, you know, your grandfather saw his ads in the newspaper. Uh, you see your um, ads in uh, on TV, or you saw your ads growing up on TV. Kids today, you know, they see their ads on TikTok and YouTube and, and those things, and. Uh, that's how they have to be engaged. So if you're not in that space, if you're not sure what to do in that space as far as your marketing and all that, um, probably time to really double down and get serious because that is the way you're going to need to talk to your future consumers. Well, and you can feel kind of the industry, not just the seafood industry, you can feel the advertising industry kind of casting about trying to figure out how they're going to handle it um, and looking for, for solutions for how they can, um, you know, inform uh, inform people uh, to satisfy their their clients that are paying them to to get awareness so i thought that was really interesting and yeah as you said john i think it's um it's sort of beyond uh it's kind of beyond understanding for gen x and and older how some of these users sort of conceive of influencers um so yeah that's another issue we're going to take a look at and help illuminate all of us about what an influencer actually is. Well, and and you mentioned tilapia and some of the bad press it, it, it got and how, it, I mean, it really affected sales in the U.S. They, they, they fell sharply. And where did it get all that bad press primarily? You know, on social channels, through through the internet. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily TV shows or things like that. You know, um, it was it was all digital. It was digital brainwashing, if you will, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, if you need any example of how powerful it can be, although in this case not in in our favor, 
that is probably a good example. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see if companies can really figure out how to harness it. I think it's, you know, the industry has not traditionally been very quick to move on some of these trends. And so, um, yeah, let's see if they um, if they get wise to some of these uh, some of these changes in, in marketing and informing consumers. Well, John, uh, thanks for the update there on uh, on the uh, Global Seafood Market Conference. It sounded like it was an, an excellent event. Um, of course, it still continues to be great to see people in, in person and to see things uh, kind of picking uh, back up. And that being the case, I think the industry is kind of back on to its uh, slightly busier travel schedule uh, in the first half. And so... We have the North Atlantic Seafood Forum coming up in just over a month in Bergen. Uh, we will be there. Bergen's where uh, one of our largest offices are, so uh, it's always nice. We have a big contingent that is able to show up to that event. And then a few days after that, it is the Boston Seafood Show. That's the big one in the United States. Uh, and we will be there, of course. Um, so we'll be uh, available if uh, if you want to uh, swing by and uh, say uh, hello to uh, the editorial team. Let us know what's happening out there in the sector. Uh, also, uh, join us on March 13th, and we will have our uh, leadership breakfast there. And we're very excited about it. Uh, we'll have uh, some really fantastic thought leaders there. We've already got a couple that'll be joining us. Silver Bay Seafood CEO Cor Campbell, Clearwater Fine Food CEO Ian Smith, uh, and some others that are uh, going to be joining. So don't miss that site uh, uh go to interfishevents.com actually uh and uh, find more info and register there and so with that we'll look forward to chatting with you next time Intrafish podcast is brought to you by DSM Animal Nutrition and Health, accelerating sustainable and profitable aquaculture.